looking through the book of Genesis, the life of Abraham, the, we're at the life of Jacob. Chapter, Genesis chapter 32, it's our passage this morning. To catch you up to speed, our main character, Jacob, has left his uncle Laban, conniving uncle Laban, and after 20 years of underpaid labor, Jacob is headed back to the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham, back to his family there. He's headed back because God has told him that now is the time for him to return. No sooner does Jacob obey God than comes this terrible news that Esau is marching out to meet him with 400 men who are there with with spears, possibly. 400 men. There's no way that Jacob is going to survive this. So as this last-ditch effort, in order, a way to, in order to placate Esau, he sends wave after wave of gifts to him. Hundreds of, of livestock, hundreds of goats, and then hundreds of sheep, and then hundreds of cows. Each one of them, in a way of saying, this is a gift to my lord Esau, and Jacob will be coming along. Jacob, your servant, will be here shortly. That's part of his plan. Second part of his plan is to divide his family up into to two sections. The one wife with her her kids goes this way, and the other wife goes that way, hoping that if Esau attacks one of them, at least the other is going to survive. He, and not everything will be lost. So that's where we're at. Jacob has sent everybody over the river, and he's decided to stay back. He's going to spend a night all alone, probably the, the very last night on earth. We read verse 9. He prayed, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I originally crossed this Jordan, and now I've, I've come back. I've become a, a very rich man. I've become two camps. Oh God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and attack the mothers and the children. But you said that I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. And if you skip ahead with me to verse 22, he sends the waves of, of gifts. The same night he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children. He crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with this man. Then the, the man said, the assailant said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but 
Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But the man said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because we get this little explanation um, about diet here. Because they don't eat that because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. That's interesting. I can't remember who it was. I, I said in the first service, somebody, a friend of mine from yonder and yesterday, yesteryear, was a graduate of the University of Iowa. I was talking with him, and he said that hey, Iowa is a Big Ten school. They have a pretty good football team, pretty good basketball team, the Iowa Hawkeyes. But he said, without a doubt, the, the greatest athletes at the University of Iowa are its wrestlers. You know, it's not the six foot ten center on the basketball team. It's not the two hundred fifty pound pound um, linebacker. He said it's the guys that outwork everybody else are the wrestlers, and you hear that uh, with some frequency. Wrestlers and swimmers are absolute beasts because they are. I mean, their sport is basically one full body workout. I mean, you think of what it takes to take your body and press through water quickly. That was working, that works every single muscle in your body. And you think of, what, what does it take on a wrestling mat? Every one of your muscles is pressed up against the corresponding muscle of another person. You know, muscle to muscle, bone to bone, every, and that is why, if you have any experience wrestling, which I don't, uh, <laughs> three minutes, just give yourself three minutes on the wrestling mat, and you're absolutely exhausted. There's nothing like, there's nothing like wrestling. Um, not that I would know that personally, because <laughs> I opted for the tenor section in high school. <laughs> <laughs> Three minutes, you're exhausted. Can you imagine what it would be like to wrestle through the entirety of the night? When we come to this point in the story, we can simply surmise that Jacob's nerves. He's thinking it's the last night of his life. His nerves had to be completely frayed and fried. He's very nervy. He, uh, he's, he hears a, rest, a rustling in the bushes over here, and he, he's like, oh, what was that? I thought I heard something. <laughs> he sees some movement in the shadows on the horizon. Oh, what was that? Is that, a, is that a man? You can imagine he's very jumpy when all of a sudden two arms wrap around him and put him in a vice-like grip. So what is going through Jacob's mind? All of a sudden, he's, he's grabbed with, with tremendous strength from behind. He is thinking, it must be Esau. Esau, it has to be Esau. Esau, he's finally come for me. Oh, this is the end. We said last week that Jacob was a very strong man. We talked about how there, there's a point in the story when he sees shepherdess Rachel 
needing help with tending of her flocks. There's a very large rock that covers up the well. And normally it takes two to three men to remove this rock. But Jacob goes down and he throws it off you know, like uh, the world's strongest man type of, type of thing immediately. He's very strong. Uh, presumably he w- would have won most of the wrestling matches that he had been involved in in the course of his life. But here he is, five minutes turns to 15 minutes. 15 minutes turns to 30 minutes. Try as he might, he cannot beat this guy. They're perfectly evenly matched. And that is how a wrestling match goes through all of the watches of the night. You have two men who are perfectly evenly matched. One cannot get any advantage over the other. And Jacob's probably remembering Esau. Esau was Esau's strong, but is this Esau? And as the match nears its end, three clues emerge to reveal this mysterious adversary. So let's look at those. Three clues. Number one, verse 23, that it's where he touches Jacob's hip socket. If you read that there, verse 23, he, he touched it. If you read the Hebrew there, it, the Hebrew says that he touched it. <laughs> Like, in other words, he tapped it. It was just the, the slightest, the merest touch. He didn't yank it. He didn't twist the guy's leg. Just the, the, a mere flick of, of the finger. And here it is. Jacob's hip is dislocated. And he will spend the rest of his life crippled from this touch. What did he have? What was going through his mind after that? I think um, fathers, I, I can speak for, I can speak personally about this. Fathers, we love to wrestle with our kids on the living room floor. And we love that moment when they have us pinned and all five of them are, you know, jumping on top of our chests and, and we're pinned on the ground we love that moment when they're yelling into the kitchen saying, Mom, look, we've got him, got him down. And that moment when all of a sudden a father and his great fatherly roar, rah, he, he stands up and, he's, and all five kids are you know, hanging off of him. And that moment uh, of, uh, of fatherly victory, fatherly brutality, as the kids, at that moment, what's happening, they realize that the dad has been going easy on us. The dad has been holding something back. And that's what's happening here. With a mere touch. My fa- oh, this guy, he, he, he has some hidden power, doesn't he? So that would have been going through Jacob's mind. That's number one. Number two, and this one's found in verse 26. A, a rather mysterious statement's made here. The this assailant says to Jacob, quote, let me go for the day is about to break. Now, there's different, different ways we could uh, read this or understand this. It could be an appeal. The assailant could be saying, please, please, let me go because I cannot handle the, uh, the breaking of the dawn. I cannot handle the sunlight. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds kind of like a, a vampire story. Sounds kind of like lots of ancient folklore. 
where you would have some kind of night spirit or some kind of demon or some kind of troll who, who can't stand the breaking of the, sun, of the, the daylight's sun because they'll turn into stone. So maybe it's an appeal. Uh, uh, please, please, let me go because, because the sun is about to rise. Or maybe, no, this is what it is. The man is saying, let me go because you cannot stand the breaking of the dawn. Because you cannot handle the morning light. And by that, he means, uh, you are not allowed to see my face. It's so deeply ingrained in the Hebrew mind. Every Hebrew boy, boy, girl, parent knows that nobody can survive seeing the face of God. That God's face is so holy and pure and glorious that even someone as great as Moses... Remember what happens when Moses asks to see God's face? God says, well, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you see something. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, but I won't let you see my face because if you see my face, you die. I'll let you see my back. So he's saying, you cannot handle the breaking of the dawn, Jacob. Uh, you cannot see my face. And then uh, Jacob names that place Peniel, for I have seen, the, seen God face to face but it was the face of God in the shadows. Or we could put it this way. I like it to put it this way. It was God, the face of God, disguised in the darkness. Clue number three. Clue number three found in verse 29. Jacob's, Jacob replies to this man and says, please tell me your name. And the man, man says back to him, why is it that you ask my name? Come on, Jacob. Surely by now, you already know who I am. Surely you already know who, by now you know what's going on here. You know who I am, but you don't have any, you don't need to ask my name. You know what's going on here? Uh, okay, we go back to the, the fact that Jacob's hip has been dislocated. I have never dislocated any appendage on my body, but I've been, I, I have watched football players walk off the field with dislocated shoulders, crying like babies. I've seen people, it seems like when you suffer a dislocation, like when your body part goes out of joint, it, it seems like it's agonizing. And isn't it, I'm not a doctor, but isn't, isn't uh, the hip and that tendon like the largest and the most powerful tendon in the entire body? And here, you ha here he has a dislocated hip. His hip is, we could put it this way, his hip is shattered. He cannot walk. He's in agonizing pain. It could be when he asked the guy's name, it's like, is this really God? If this is really God... It's amazing that I'm actually going to survive this encounter. He could be saying that, or he could be saying, is this really God? Because if this is really God, I can't believe that God would hurt me this badly. Who has ever heard of a God who maims the people that he loves? Does God do that? Uh, um... The, the liberal God out there doesn't do that. The liberal God is all about buttercups and candy canes. <laughs> he just wants to make sure everybody is feeling love. 
He wants to make be, be sure that everybody is, is feeling happy. The liberal God wouldn't maim you. Uh, on the other hand, the conservative God wouldn't maim you either. The conservative God, the God who, who cares about your obedience. If you obey him, then, then you're good to go. God will bless you. God blesses, God helps those who help themselves. So, so long as you are doing your part and obeying him, and as I've said in the story so far, Jacob is, is at this one point of his life definitely obeying God because God has sent him into the danger and Jacob has obediently gone. Uh, would, so here's what's happening. If we could take the big picture. At the beginning of the story, Jacob probably thinks that he is wrestling with Esau. By the end of the story, he realizes that he is wrestling with God and the pain receptors in Jacob's brain are just firing on all cylinders and they're dead red. He's, he's screaming in anguish. He's saying, I can't believe it. I have met God and God has crippled me. And so what does he do? He holds on for dear life. The match is over. He can't move, but he holds on to God for dear life and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Even if, even if it means dying and the sun comes up over the horizon, I am not going to let you go. I am holding on for dear life until you bless me. Next week, we're going to look at the life of Joseph, as I said already, and to prepare for the sorrows that come into Joseph's life. I started reading this week Tim Keller's uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He, I think he published this a couple of years ago. It's a great book, as I think kind of all Tim Keller books are. The first third of Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he looks at how different worldviews interpret pain and healing and suffering. That's the second two-thirds of the book deal with the Christian gospel and how, how the Christian perspective on, on pain and suffering. But interspersed through the entire book are these stories, these stories of Christians as they walk with God through pain and suffering. And what stood out to me as I'm reading through the book is how almost every one of these stories mimic almost perfectly the story of Jacob. I, there, this is, okay, so I decided we're going to do uh, a long story <laughs> this morning. This is the story of Kendra. She's titled hers, Scars of Beauty and Depth by Kendra. <laughs> Just moments before, my husband John and I we're happily chatting with the ultrasound technician there in the doctor's office. We had been waiting 20 long weeks to learn the gender of our child, hoping it would be the encouragement we needed to carry us through the second half of this difficult pregnancy. But an awkwardness almost settled onto the, the room. Silence followed, followed by the words, let me get the doctor in here. Uh, let me get the doctor in here. I'm sorry. I don't, I can't seem to find a heartbeat. 
As the technician stepped out to call the doctor, our hearts were desperately willing that he would come in and he would find the heartbeat and the baby would be okay and, and everything would be okay. Our first child was a baby girl. She was born two years earlier. She came into the world, this beautiful, healthy uh, baby girl. My, my pregnancy with her was anything but beautiful and healthy. A few weeks in, I was diagnosed with a rare condition called hyperemesis gravidarum. It's close enough, huh? HG, which affects about 2% of all pregnancies. HG is marked by rapid weight loss, malnutrition, dehydration due to unrelenting nausea and vomiting that accompanies it. In my first trimester, I lost. I didn't gain. I lost 25 pounds. I had repeated IVs put into my body to treat dehydration. Lots of intravenous medications. I had to depend on a powerful anti-nausea drug for the duration of the pregnancy. All of these, the good news was that all of these symptoms disappeared the day that she was born. My health, it, it, it improved rapidly. And as that happened, we settled into the wonderful chaos of life with a newborn baby girl. As we reflected on it, in the end, all that we had been through seemed like a very small price to pay for the abundant joy a longed-for child brings. Now, the doctors cautioned us. They said that it was possible, very possible, I would experience HG again. But our desire to have another child was so strong, uh, I dare say stronger than our memories. So foolishly believing that our experience had taught us something about managing the condition, we moved forward trying to conceive. About one week after conceiving the good news, celebrating the good news of the positive pregnancy test, the condition returned. Unfortunately, this time it promised to be an even more severe case. In fact, the doctors told me that only one half of 1% of all pregnancies are diagnosed with this severe of a case of HG as, as I was. So what happened? My doctor immediately hospitalized me. We began an aggressive treatment plan that uh, included a peripherally inserted central catheter that was inserted near my heart to administer the medications and the nutrients my body needed to support the life growing inside me. There I was in the hospital, and I didn't eat for four months. I was weak. I was nauseated every waking moment, vomiting multiple times a day. Uh, thankfully, a host of family and friends gave us round-the-clock care. They, they took care of our, our little daughter. They prepared meals and sat with me. They prayed for us. They were the hands and feet of Christ. And we have often since wondered how we would ever have survived this time without our Christian community. Their love literally literally nourished us and sustained us. As I look back, as we look back, we see that the grieving actually began very early in the pregnancy when we, well, we knew that this was the last one. This would have to be our last pregnancy. The, chem, the chemical incompatibility that my body has with pregnancy, we couldn't intentionally put our family or me through this kind of suffering again, and we we deeply grieved over that fact. You know, 
it got to the point where we were just trying our best to hold on and make it through each day, understanding that it could be like this for nine months. And on that gray February day, we reached the halfway point. We celebrated that significant milestone halfway there. So excited to discover the gender of our child. And I, I heard myself um, screaming out in pain. Babies, babies are not supposed to die. I often found myself thinking and literally screaming that, uh, that th- this tragic ending after months of the physical suffering that we had gone to it just seemed al- almost too cruel to be true. And it got crueler. So I had to, the next day, uh, the, the induced labor, as the lifeless body of John Wilson, John Wilson's what we named him, as I gave birth to our second child, uh, to the son whom we would never know in this life. The days following this were profoundly dark and empty. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't breathe, it seemed like. I... I've never felt so tender and limp. The thing is, I happen to be a psychotherapist in my job, by vocation. I, I know the stages of grief intellectually, inside and out, and yet here I was, the psychotherapist, experiencing them firsthand, and words to describe the feelings, those feelings, words are simply not adequate. Yes, there were moments of anger, of course. But more often, it was, I just felt anguish. And then I'd feel jealousy, then then bitterness. All the while, profound, profound sorrow. I wasn't afraid to express these emotions to God. In in fact, I, I did that, I did so often. And somehow, in the midst of the range of emotions, as I expressed them out to God, as I prayed them out to God, as I yelled them out to God, I felt that that daily there was this strong and powerful peace that was working its way into my heart. As I I held on to God, I, I felt His presence deeply. And I understood that though He allows tragedies to befall us, He doesn't abandon us, nor does he deny us an intimate and life-giving relationship with him. My relationship with him was growing in new ways and becoming so much more real. He was drawing me so much more closer to him through each painful question and doubt. You know how Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn? Those words... Blessed are those who mourn. Those became not just words to us, but those were, we began to experience those. We, we lived them. We breathed them. They weren't just words on a page. They were, I can't explain it. Like most of you reading this, we, like most of you reading this, we feel sure we would never have chosen to endure the pain of having a stillborn baby. However, we have been able to recognize the rich gifts we would never have received had we not been through this dark night. 
I am actually, I am actually thankful for the gift of my pain because it reminds me of my vulnerability and it reminds me of my need for dependence. It's so not our nature or it is so our nature to be strong and independent. And there is nothing like suffering to strike down our ego and cause us to, to depend. The stripping of my ego opened up for me uh, the knowledge of God and knowing God and depending on God in, in so much a deeper of a way. Final paragraph. In the days after losing our son, a friend told me that we would, quote, always walk with a limp. From then, from then on, always, the rest of our lives, we'd limp, we'd be scarred. But in time, I have come to think of the scars as unique marks of beauty and depth. Our story didn't end there, of course. We now enjoy the vibrancy of a life with two precious children, our nine-year-old daughter and our miracle child, our son, which is an entirely another story, but who's turning five this week. Uh, we look forward to the day, oh, we look forward to the day when we'll be reunited with our first son in heaven. Until then, it's gratitude. It's gratitude we feel for experiencing God in a very real and dynamic way, and we rejoice in, in this new depth of life that he has given us. And that's, isn't that a Jacob story? It's a Jacob story. Like on one level, this passage is explaining, it's explaining the name of Israel. This is, this is Jacob's naming experience. He stands at the, the head of a, of a great numerous people, the hundreds and thousands of people we call. He, he is named Israel, and they are called the Israelites. But isn't it interesting that, that in this identity story, God places the identity story in the middle of a story that will get replicated time and time and time again in those same people's lives. Like Jacob's, Jacob's wrestling with God, his, his being crippled, his holding on for dear, dear life. That is what will happen again and again. He cripples us. We hang on. One of the ways that we move from abstract knowledge about God to a, a personal encounter with God to knowing God is a living reality, it is only through the darkness of the night of suffering. I mean, we as Christians, I'm sure it's true of them as Israelites too. We know lots of doctrinal truths of the mind, but seldom, very seldom, will those things go down into our souls and into our hearts except for loss, pain, disappointment, failure, desperation. It's like what, what Kendra said. We'd never have chosen to endure the pain of a stillborn birth, but then we would never have received the gifts, the blessings, the knowledge of God that has come as a result of it. Now, I can say as a pastor, I, probably the, the best training that I ever got to be a pastor was having, um, having my mom die six days after Hannah was born and then having Aaron's father die when we were in the middle of seminary, then having Aaron's grandmother die just a, 
a short time after, in the prime of her life, I don't know, I think I've told you about her, just what an interesting woman. She's in her 70s. She bicycled across the United States three times, and then that wasn't enough, so she decided she'd bicycle across Vietnam. And it was in Vietnam that she had, she had a bicycling accident. Um, I, I mean, I, the best training for me as a Christian was almost having Hannah die um, and going through, the, through many bouts of depressions uh, that I have. And my sister suffered a stillborn birth. I went through that with her. And the, friends, the, the only way to get to know God like this, it, I, mean, you can, I, I mean, I can't do it. You can't really learn it through a sermon. It's not something that you can get through a book. It is something, the only way to have this blessing is to go through it by being crippled and then clinging to God in agony. You will never know how much Jesus Christ is until Jesus Christ is the only thing that you've got left. And it's the only thing you're holding on to. You know that. I'm not telling you anything that you haven't heard before. You, you just need to hear it again. The great theme of the Bible is how God brings fullness of joy, not despite suffering, but through suffering, Uh, That's the gospel, just as Jesus saved us, not in spite of suffering, but because of the suffering that he endured on the cross. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Not only Jesus' joy, but, but our joy. There is a peculiar, rich, and poignant joy that seems to come to us only through this crippling, this wrestling, and this clinging. I hope to, I know I'm just touching the, the surface of it. I hope I can do a good job of talking about it next week when I jump into to Joseph's story. But what I, what I wanted this to be was, for those of you who are hurting badly, I wanted it to be words of hope. For those of you who are not hurting badly, you're surrounded by people that are. And I wanted you to be able to speak to speak from a passage of the Bible and speak to them. Um, I wanted these to be words of hope. These are, here's how, here's how, here's where the hope comes from. Do you remember, I'm going to close right here. Do you remember what it was that Jacob was longing for, what he wanted more than anything else in life? At the very beginning of Jacob's story, what was it that he was desperately craving to receive? Desperately craving for the Father's blessing. And surely this man, for the rest of his life, went through his life feeling like, I know my dad doesn't love me. No, my dad doesn't love me. My, my dad loves my older brother. Even though I dressed up as Esau and, and received his blessing, I didn't really receive his blessing. I, my, dad doesn't, my dad doesn't love me. I'll never have that. And... And now my brother has come in the dead of the night. I've lost everything. I'm going to lose everything. My wife, my kids, my livestock, my wealth. Uh, he's choking me out. You can almost see the, the, the scene uh, fade to black. He's choking me. I'm going to die. Everything is going to be taken from me. All of Jacob's greatest fears were upon him at that very moment. But it wasn't the end because it wasn't Esau. It wasn't the end 
It wasn't Esau. It was God disguised as the end. And what do you, the way it ends, what he had been longing for his whole life. Uh, what was it? The, pro, the approval, the blessing, the communion, the nearness, the thing that he'd been longing for his whole life. He finally receives. He gets it. The blessing of God. Amen.